This week on the Across the Peak podcast, Rich and I are going to tell you how to make love to a woman and train a dog. Just kidding. It's only how to train a dog. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and, well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed-up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak rich how you doing this morning man we're up for kind of an early one we are for, we are up for an early one man and uh the sun has come up here in beautiful tennessee and uh, i've done a little bit of vehicle preventive maintenance already this morning had two awesome espressos and i'm ready to talk about uh how to train a dog, but we probably should do an episode on how to make love to a woman. I think people might find that interesting. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I, I, my philosophy is all missionary for procreative purposes only. boy. <laughs> um, so what, what kind of vehicle PM did you do this morning? We should probably do an episode on that at some point. I am, uh, my head is all into vehicle stuff, man. I'm, I'm about to have to buy a car. Or, or not have to, but probably within the next, I'm going to say eight months, I'm probably going to buy a car, and, and my head is kind of in that, getting something that has, you know, good long longevity, and, and I, I think you know that I am kind of into maintaining my stuff and all about taking care of my things, but what did you get into this morning? Anything major? Couldn't, couldn't have been that big. It's pretty early. No, nothing crazy, but so you're going to get rid of the Maserati and get a Lamborghini, or what are you doing there? Uh, I might I might get a, get rid of the uh, Bugatti Sexarosa here, and uh, I don't know, downgrade to something a little more uh, a little more modest. I don't know. We'll see. A little more mundane, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, my son and I went to jujitsu last night, BJJ, and uh, when he sh- showed up to train with me, I, I looked at his tires i'm like bro you got to get those inflated so um, he's home for the summer um he's got the semester off in college of course and so i said bro you can't you can't drive tomorrow until we get these tires aired up and uh, i let him sleep in and it's funny man my, my son's got this little quirky sense of humor you've met grant and he had this list laid out next to the coffee and a tire ga- pressure gauge laying next to it and at the top of so he had all the to-do list things that he wanted to get accomplished today and the very first thing on the list was something like uh have someone else find this list before i wake up and he already had it checked off i'm like what a quirky sense of humor <laughs> <laughs> what a dickhead yeah i, <laughs> I love it uh, i'm just kidding man uh yes well well that's good it sounds like um it, honestly, it sounds like he could probably use an episode on how to take care of his vehicle. vehicle like vehicle stuff is uh, is pretty important, man. We spend a lot of time in it. But anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. I tell you, I tossed and turned all night looking forward to doing this episode today because this is something I am just as passionate as I can be about, and that is training a dog. And I, I will reiterate for the listener, uh, for the listening audience out there, I am not an expert dog trainer. I've never worked as a canine handler. I've, 
uh, never had any formal training on this, but I have had the opportunity to train uh, some some dogs that turned into pretty phenomenal animals. Uh, what's what's your uh, what's your background on that, Rich? Man, I was a terrible dog trainer when uh, my wife and I got married very young. We were 18 years old, right out of high school, and you know we had gotten a puppy along the way, and we were just looking back on it now. We didn't know anything about dog training, so. Um, but I feel like just about anything you want to learn, you can learn from reading a book and following others. So after some trial and error, I think now we have it pretty down pat, man. But I think one of the fascinating things that we often overlook is like this long history that humans have with interacting with dogs. Are we going to talk any about maybe how we got here as as a human species and we have this close relate? Actually, it's I've heard it said, and I don't know if this is true, Justin, but Humans and dogs are the two most uh, interconnected species. Uh, this symbiotic relationship we have with dogs is is unlike the you know that in the animal kingdom. Have you ever heard that? It, yeah, and it is a fascinating history. And there, boy, we are just going to jump right into this because I could talk about this all day. So, yeah, basically the the theory of dogs is they were the wolves that were the weak members of their pack or, or the the least maybe the least fit members of their pack and they were the animals that were brave enough or for whatever reason would get close to human fires. So humans started feeding them and they started coming closer and, you know, through this period of evolution, they became domesticated as dogs, that line of the wolf family and the, and the uh, Latin name of dog is still Canis lupus familiaris. Dogs can still breed with wolves to my knowledge and basically what we have in in dogs that we keep as pets or anything we recognize as a dog from your Bernie's Mountain Dog all the way down to your teacup chihuahua they all have the same basic DNA but we have introduced a lot of those changes that we see dogs are just massively malleable into whatever we want to make them into whatever trait we want to bring out whether it's a size trait, a hunting drive trait, whatever it is, we we have just been incredibly good at at molding those animals into what we want them to be. And what we've ended up with are basically what would be referred to probably as juvenile wolves. Um, wolves that are, dogs are basically wolves that exhibit exhibit the traits of juveniles. They kind of cling to their uh, the other members of their pack, their dogs are not loners. They are they are very very much pack animals, and and so are wolves. But uh, they're also much more loners typically um, than than modern dogs are. And you can look at some fasc- fascinating things like the. Uh, have you ever heard of the Sib Fox experience experiment? No. Huh? So the this researcher, oh, the Siberian foxes. Yeah. 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 This re- researcher caught a bunch of Siberian foxes and basically did this experiment where he put them all in cages. Every day he would walk by the cages and the ones that were least afraid of him that recoiled the least or maybe exhibited curiosity, he would take those, he would breed them. Their offspring, he would, when they were grown, he would put them in cages. And he, he in, a, in a matter of a couple of years, he had breeded he had succeeded in creating Siberian foxes that were essentially dogs that would come very, very close to him and, and basically be pets. And now I think you can buy these things, but 
The same thing that happened with dogs also happened with the Siberian foxes. Their coat uh, looks quite a bit different. Uh, it came white it, or something, didn't it? Yeah, it, yeah, it turned a different color. They didn't have the need for like the uh, the the pure silvery coat like they needed hunting on the on the tundra in Siberia. Their ears are actually floppy now. They've they've lost their pointed ears. Um, pointed ears. Some dogs have pointed ears still, but uh, again, that's been selected for by us. So, um, basically those sub Fox dogs that you can buy now are look and act like juvenile Siberian foxes. Yeah. That's an interesting study. I saw that on a documentary and over the, I mean, what's amazing is that the short amount of time that we see this evolutionary change, I want to say it's like less than 50 years by doing this selective breeding, you know, but he, I don't we didn't also talk about the second part of the research was he took the 10 most aggressive. So he took the 10 most docile out of every litter and bred them together. And, and, and over many generations, he got this result. But he also did the same thing with the most aggressive of the litter, right, to where they are just absolutely you can't get near them. They will tear your face off. But what, what's amazing is that the, the human dog relationship is so long, you know, um, we have, according to some studies that I've seen, the, the mitochondrial DNA, which is passed on from uh, from the mother to the uh, offspring, it indicates that um, this relationship between us has been going on for about 100,000 years or so. And there's also some hint of uh, mutual domestication. Like, not only did we change dogs, but maybe they changed us, which I think is also incredibly fascinating. Agreed. And... You know, like plants, we we think that that we have domesticated and mastered plants. But we'll talk about this another day. But I'm I'm a big fan of Michael Pollan, and he talks about things like marijuana or apples that have enticed us. Basically, they have persuaded us to propagate them and make their species wildly successful by offering us something that we like, like intoxicating uh, intoxication effect through uh, as marijuana has or sweetness like an apple has they have kind of influenced us as probably as much as we have um have influenced them when i taught um combat patrolling um at the school of infantry in the marine corps one of the classes i used to teach was you know how to conduct an ambush patrol and part of the attention gainer that i gave at the beginning of the class was uh referencing that some of the earliest human social cooperative efforts was probably uh, a hunting party and this hunting party would ambush and kill its prey and one of the things that probably made one human group more successful over another rival human group for the same uh, resources was their ability to domesticate these dogs because i you know as we're probably the listener will probably be familiar you know the, the dogs have such an incredible uh, sense of smell so we were able to use that sense of smell, their ability to hear better than us, to be some sort of like a little alarm system for us. And um, the humans that, that were using these dogs, they were succeeding and their offspring got to go on. And so I think that's kind of where we got today with this relationship. Yeah, so so we have dogs. We're very close to them. They're very close to us. They're, my dog is legally... It, it, Anybody's dog is considered property in any state in the United States, which I think is nuts, man. I think that's absolutely crazy. And 
uh, one of my former significant others went to law school and, and, uh, <laughs> she found it fascinating that, uh, some of the professors, one of the professors in particular, making an example in class, just said, who here is a dog guardian? And she was like, dog guardian? What the fuck is a dog guardian? Um, and I was, she was relating the story to me, and I was like, yeah, what is a dog guardian? And <laughs> basically, she's like, if you're a dog parent, owner, whatever, and she's like, I found that really interesting, because here's this attorney that teaches at a law school and is not making that distinction that dogs are legally they're considered chattel or or property they're just a piece of property but uh, i think you and i would both consider them family members oh they're 100 percent family members and in a recent poll i saw uh 40 of dog owners you know when asked they said the same thing i'm I'm actually surprised it's that low but yeah um What's interesting about that, you know, on my other podcast, we um, have a relationship with attorney Andrew Branca, who's probably the leading self-defense attorney in the United States. And, you know, he the question comes up to him again and again, you know, can I use deadly force in defense of my dog? And the answer is, like you said, Justin, is no. No, you cannot use deadly force against a human being in protection of just a piece of property. It'd be no difference in if they were trying to steal a, one of your pins or, or a pair of your sunglasses, which I find that I, I would be interested in to see, you know, 100 years from now, if that is still the case, wouldn't you? Well, like many things, I don't think the law has caught up to 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 where we are as a society. Again, like many, many things, I think the law is, is well behind that. And that was in the 1700s, 1800s. That was probably true. That's probably how most people consider dogs. I think societally, we have changed a lot and we look at dogs very, very differently now. But anyway, Rich, we haven't even begun to talk about uh, how to train a dog. So we should probably get into that. Um, why, why the heck would you want a well-trained dog? Why not just let a dog be a dog? <laughs> That's funny. Bill Burr has a thing like, you know what I saw the other day? I saw balls on a dog. And uh, because you just don't see that anymore. But I, but I think it's part of being a responsible pet owner to have a well-trained dog. I think it's to get the entire usefulness of the dog, you want it well-trained. I think that in order to have the dog uh, that can uh, interact with others in a way that... Uh, you know, makes them less threatening. It's a great idea to have a well-trained dog. I mean, what am I missing, man? Yeah, I agree, man. That is a, that is an awesome point. Um, as kind of a safety, uh, consideration for, for your dog and for other people and for other dogs, it's kind of your responsibility to make sure your dog is well-trained. And I kind of look at this, like I look at across the peak podcast. I, I, it, when I look at someone with a dog, if I think about like James Bond having a dog, do you think James Bond would have a dog that as soon as you walk in his house, it's jumping up on everybody with muddy paws and he can't make it lay down and be still? Probably not. He'd probably have a dog that he could like look real hard at and it would go fuck off and go lay down, right? Yeah. So um, th- there's a lot of, there's like, that's my, that's my, um, quote unquote, competent man uh, reason for having a well trained dog. But there's a lot of, really tangible reasons for having a well-trained dog. First of all, it's less stressful for you and the dog. And, and there's many, many reasons why. If you go to um, a dog park, you want your dog to be able to interact with other dogs. If, if someone walks up on your porch, you want that dog to do the things that, to bring you some of those benefits that a dog brings 
alerting, uh, alerting you to the presence of someone on the porch that doesn't belong there and that sort of thing. You also don't want that dog just attacking that person. So there, there has to be a balance and there has to be training and the dog has to have some boundaries. Um, but with a well-trained dog, my biggest thing is the dog just gets more freedom. Uh, so my dog, I can, I can walk her. I, I live in a suburb of a major U S city. I can walk her off leash. If I'm so inclined, uh, she will heal with me. Uh, her shoulder just at like at my left shoulder she will stay right with me she won't get ahead she won't go behind I can let her run ahead if I want to I can tell her free and she can go do her thing Um, I can take her many more places I can take her around little kids I can take her around other dogs it 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 just gives so much more freedom for the dog and lets her experience a lot more also lets her be with me a lot more because that's Above all, that's what she wants is to be with me. That's the only thing she has an anxiety around is not being near me. And she can't be always be there, but uh, it, it, it gives your dog vastly more freedom. No, right on, bro. I mean, I, I totally agree with that. And uh, are we going to talk at some point about selecting a breed relative to uh, specific training requirements? Yeah, before we do that, though, uh, let, let me hit on one other thing, and that is uh, that another benefit is safety for the dog. Um, for me, this is massively, massively important. If I let my dog off leash, there are all manner of things that, that could go badly. Um, a, a poorly trained dog uh, might run out into traffic. You might not be able to call it back. It might start eating something that you don't want it eating. There, there's all kinds of bad things that can happen. And I know with my with my dog, I have done, you know, the gamut from like basic obedience training. We've done a little bit of tracking training through a friend of mine that's a retired dog handler. I've done some aggression training with her. I know I can call her off of anything. Uh, so as a, as an example, um, I was I was training uh, some people in at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, with two uh, two other people were with me. We went out to dinner one night. We came back. Uh, I was walking the dog around in the hotel parking lot, and we were the three of us were just standing there, just kind of, just kind of talking about the day and the next day and whatever. And I let her off leash, and she went about doing her thing. And I saw her pick up something. I called her over, and it was a huge chunk of beef jerky. <laughs> and she came over to me, ears back, looked at me. I told her off, and no louder than I said it right there. She dropped the beef jerky and just sat down. And that's the kind of safety thing. I know if she were running toward the road, even if she were chasing her absolute favorite object, which is a Frisbee, she could be hauling toward the road. And if I told her, wait, she would stop right there in her tracks and wait, and I I wouldn't have to worry about it. I think the safety thing can't be overstated. The last thing in the world I want to see is my dog get injured because of uh, just maybe negligence on my part or sheer accident or whatever the case may be, that is the single biggest reason to me to have a well-trained dog. Absolutely spot on, man. You know, we've got a, on this country road I live on people, there's either no traffic on this road or people flying down this road. And, um, the neighbors across the street are the world's worst dog owners, man. I call them out right now. Um, since we've lived here six years or so, They've probably gone through, I don't know, man, six or eight different dogs. You kidding, man? 
No, because they just, you know, they don't take care of them. So somebody will shoot them for eating their chickens or they'll get hit by a car on the road. I mean, the dogs are just roaming all over the place. They're completely untrained, completely unsupervised. And it just shows a complete lack of care and concern for the safety of that animal. I just find it abhorrent. Well, I mean, yeah, for the safety of the animal. Also, for for other people, like, uh, don't be... Don't be that jerk dog dog owner that lets your dog go take a crap in somebody else's yard that just lets your dog run wild because that's that's not good for anybody. No, it's not. So, um, man, okay, those are some really good reasons. So um, what are we going to do, get a smart dog or what are we going to get a dumb dog? What do you recommend? <laughs> uh, I say make this easy on yourself and get a smart dog. And uh, so I have a German Shepherd, and for me, that is the only breed of dog I will ever own. There, There is, like, every single characteristic a German Shepherd brings to the table is exactly what I'm looking for in a dog. I like the look of a German Shepherd, and I, I, I kind of have an odd-looking German Shepherd. She has a black face, and her whole body is uh, is kind of a tannish brown. Um, uh, she's kind of a striking-looking dog. Actually, a lot of people ask me if she's... Uh, Belgian Malinois. But the, my resource for this is Dr. Stanley Corrin, who I mentioned, I think, on the last episode. It was sleep the last episode that went out. Anyway, uh, Dr. Corrin is a, a professor of canine psychology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And his book, Intelligence of Dogs, I'm going to mention several books through this, so we won't do a book of the week, but these links will all be at acrossthepeak.com forward slash E008. You can find links to all these books in the show notes. But Dr. Corin uh, basically categorized dogs into brightest dogs, excellent working dogs, above average working dogs, average working slash obedience intelligence, fairer, lowest, uh, and so on. And his, his category here, I'll just do the top and the bottom few. The brightest dogs, the absolute top dogs, understand new commands in fewer than five repetitions. So you have to show that dog what you want and say the command less than five times. And they obey the first command 95% of the time or better. And going all the way to the bottom, I guess basically the the what he calls the fair working or obedience intelligence understand new commands after 40 to 80 repetitions and obey the first command 30% of the time or better. Uh, so in that top, in that top list, I'll just name these top 10 dogs, border collie, poodle, German shepherd, golden retriever, Doberman pincher, Shetland sheepdog, Labrador retriever, papillon, Rottweiler, and Australian cattle dog. Oh, wow. I'm actually looking at that list right now, and guess what? Irish Wolfhound does not appear on that list of the top 80 intelligent dogs, So, <laughs> which is showing what I already knew. I think I've got confirmation bias going on right now. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've never actually looked. Um, also, I'm seeing... Um I'm seeing some things that answer a lot of questions for me that I've had about significant others' dogs. Uh, Rhodesian Ridgeback is uh, like 99, <laughs> like number 99 on the list, and th- and that just aligns with everything I thought I knew about that dog. Oh, wait a minute. I found it. Okay, it's number 41, which is it's a little bit better than I thought, but they're known to be kind of obstinate uh, animals, you know, so... Which is forty one puts it in the category of average working and obedient intelligence. So 
pretty impressed. Okay, well, okay, well that, that's not terrible. 15 to 25 repetitions and obey the first command 70% of the time or better. That's not terrible. But I do think getting a smarter dog will make training much, much easier on you than, than getting a dog that is not terribly smart. But let's talk about that because we're, we're talking about selecting a dog for intelligence, but also you can select dogs for other traits. Have you heard much about that? Uh, like what are, what specifically? Well, one of the, the way that I come upon this dog, of course, um, I take my Scots-Irish ancestry pretty damn seriously, but, um, was, there was some website I found where you could kind of select a dog by the qualities that you, of the different breeds that you wanted the most, like what's the most important to you? Like number one is be good around children or have a, you know, non-aggressive disposition or be less wary of strangers. And I don't know if this is pseudoscience or what, but uh, when I put in the parameters, one of the top breeds it gave me that fit my parameters was an Irish wolfhound. So I thought that was pretty neat. I don't know if it's true or not, but so far it has been. Honestly, for me, um, so what, what I would look for in a puppy that is going to be trainable, I, I don't agree with with food training at all. I, I'm completely against it. I look for play drive and, and I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but, um, I think a lot of the things about being good around kids, being good around other dogs, being good around in whatever situ- situation has a lot to do with exposure at, and, and people think I'm crazy. I, man, I try to take my dog everywhere. If, if I'm walking down the street with my dog and there's like, a weird surface I can have her walk on. I will, I will have like, I'll stop and we will work at it until she will walk across that and not be stressed about it. Cause I want to expose her to everything I possibly can. When dogs get stressed out, when they get afraid, that's when you maybe start to have problems with dogs. So, um, like as a puppy, I tried my, you know, I, I would, I would say, try your best to expose your dog to other puppies, expose them to old dogs, expose them to big dogs, small dogs, ex- like let them get around kids, let, you know, let them be around babies, adults, old people, anything you can do to, the more things you can expose your dog to the more, the, I think the more confident that dog is going to be. Uh, in itself and the basically if you can prevent the dog from getting stressed out when you're out doing whatever you're doing it's going to be it's going to have that much more mental bandwidth to focus on whatever you're telling it sounds like just relationship building 101 right yeah and i am i am all about building a relationship with your dog um this drives me crazy rich when i when i uh, first started bringing my dog around my parents. She was, she was very, very, well, what I consider to be very well-trained. And, uh, I had done none of that with food. And, and as a matter of fact, I'd been very rigid that when it's mealtime, the dog's place is to go lay down, go to sleep, do, do whatever she does, but, uh, not, not beg at the table, not be under everybody's feet, not be whatever. It was to go to her place and chill out while everybody ate dinner. So I never fed her. I didn't want to encourage that behavior. I didn't want her thinking, oh, people have food out, so it's it's time to eat. And this was the thing that I butted heads with my family about a lot. My mom constantly was asking, hey, can I give her a little bit of this? Hey, can I? Um, so actually, this really gets me a little bit. But on New Year's Day, my mom actually fixed 
like a whole plate of food for my dog that she intended to put on the floor and let my dog eat with like everything on it. And I was like, Oh boy, what are you doing? Stop. Like, you need to hear what I'm saying. You need to respect me on this or we're going to have problems. And that was kind of the end of it. But, um, my point is my mom. And I think a lot of people are just in this mindset that dogs are just food vacuum cleaners and that's all they care about. And that's the only way people know to build a relationship with a dog. And going back to that play drive, if you want to be my dog's best friend, the way you're going to do that is by playing with her. She cares about that way more than she cares about food. And and part of that is probably nature. Uh, I got a dog with very, very high play drive. Uh, but I think part of that's a, a good chunk of that is also nurture. I've never encouraged her to to want food or to beg for food or be food focused, if that makes any sense. Um, so get out of the mindset that your dog is like a single minded beast that only cares about food. Uh, it's not a furry robot. It's it's a creature that it thinks it makes decisions. If you watch your dog, it will make decisions about, Ooh, do I play with this toy or that one? Uh, pick this one. Out. I don't like that one. I'm going to go to this one. They have emotions uh, and, and not a full range of human emotions. I'm not, I'm not that crazy, but it's not a furry robot, right? No, it's not man. But, um, what's interesting that, that you chose the dog for a dog that had a high play drive. I never really considered that because, you know, one of the things that uh, this guy, Dr. Grove, wrote a lot about the human-dog relationship was that dogs, um, you know, they expect uh, food and security as, in, in exchange maybe for being our alarm systems, trackers, hunting aids, and garbage disposal facilities is what he calls them. But, but that's not how you view that at all. I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I really don't. So my dog, you've been around her. Her, if I, if I speak sternly, even if it's not directed at her, her ears go back. Um, actually this gets, uh, <laughs> like it, it's adorable, but also it gets a little frustrating at times. If I'm sitting at my computer working on something, if th- this morning I'm sitting here working on show notes for the podcast and I let out a huge sigh, she is like curled up in a ball across the room, she immediately jumps up, runs over ears back and starts nudging me to pet her. Um, and this won't apply to every dog, but she's very focused on basically on pleasing me, whatever that looks like. That's, that's her primary concern. Um, and I think that's, I think that's part of, yeah, she's very attuned to you and your emotions. I would say very attuned. That's a, that's, that's a great thing. I think. Yeah. I, I, I think that's very much a part of, um, building a relationship with the dog. Now back to the food thing. Yeah, that that is where dogs came from is scavenging and and eating our leftovers around the fire and and whatever. And I do give her uh leftovers. Like I I am not in the mindset of absolutely no human food because like what is dog food? Like dogs there's no dog food tree that ancient dogs ate off of. They they did basically evolve eating remnants of human food. So, but that goes in her bowl at mealtime. It's not a, um, uh, I, I don't hand feed her anything, uh, cause I don't want to encourage that behavior. Um, and it, it, I, yeah, I guess that's my, my take on that. On the topic of dog food, maybe we get this out of the way right now. And I've, I've seen some of the literature that tends to go both ways. Where do you fall in on our dogs, carnivores or omnivores? 
Um, I really, really believe they're omnivores. My dog will go in the yard, and if I haven't mowed the grass in a while, she will mow it for me. Um, <laughs> Uh, she she eats a lot of grass, a lot of whatever. I, I, I think dogs, I think wolves are carnivores. Uh, I think dogs have evolved to be a little more omnivorous. You know, it's funny you say that because I my wife just gave me the smackdown. She's, if she's listening, she's very rarely right. But when she is, man, she is right. So I was saying exactly what you're saying. You know, wolves are carnivores. She's like, no, they're not. I'm like, yeah, they are. You know, don't don't mess with me on this. I know what the fuck I'm talking about. So she pull, pulled up something that, and you can find this online of wolves eating berries, and I think it's something that they do if 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 they haven't had uh, meat in a while, you know, or whatever. They'll I don't know how they it puts in this diet, but they will on occasion eat berries. So you know, maybe there's um, maybe they uh, came okay. to us already. All right. Well, yeah. Like mark me down as wrong about that. Yeah, man, I was shocked about that. If you look at coyotes, coyotes are pretty much the ultimate omnivore, like the ultimate survivor. Coyotes live everywhere. Oh, yeah, man, they're all over the place down here. It's unbelievable. So on dog food, um, do you feed your dogs bag dog, like dry dog food, wet dog food, store-bought dog food, what? We went back and forth with our vet a lot about this because we wanted to feed our uh, Irish wolfhound, uh, Mary, you know, the best possible food. And, and two or three of the vets we consulted were, they kind of, you know, were like, well, blue buffalo or whatever the hell it's called, you know, some of the high-end dog foods, they just really were like, that's not necessary. What what are you, what are you where are you at on that? Uh, so I'm big on grain-free. I don't think, do- I, I, the one thing I do not think dogs are evolved to eat is mostly corn. Um, right, right. Which, which we are in this, like, um, industrial food system that basically bends corn to be absolutely everything. So I don't, I don't, I'm pretty firm on grain free dog food. And uh, so I've gone back and forth. Uh, I, so I typically feed her a a high end dog food. It's the one that gets the, it's a large breed adult dog food. Uh, I do believe in the glucosamine and chondroitin, just like uh, it's one of the few supplements that humans take it has actual proven, scientifically verified benefits for your joints and all that. Uh, so I feed that to her. German Shepherds typically have problems with their hips. I shouldn't have problems with her. But I, I just the fact that she's a big dog, she's more prone to impact injuries and, and joint problems and that. So trying to keep ahead of that. Um, and... You know, things like the available protein, what what the food is actually made out of. I I do care about the quality of ingredients. And I've also fed her, I've also had her uh, at times on uh, the barf diet, bones and raw food. It's basically just raw chicken that is ground up with the bone and everything and some vegetables. And I think there's a couple of... uh, other ingredients in there to help them get there's there's something else you have to put in there to help them get the full range of nutrients they need and i can't remember what that it's some kind of ash i think maybe not but it's some kind of like chalky substance if you were giving the listener um some advice though if they're going to select dog food in a bag would, would it be something as simple as the first ingredient in the bag can't be grains or something else it needs to be a meat product I would say whatever it is, grain-free is the way to go. Right on. Uh, but but again, I'm I, like I'm not a dog diet expert. I'm not a veterinarian. I'm not a 
uh, trainer or anything like that. But uh, what? So one other back to building a relationship with your dog. One other thing uh, that I think a lot of people don't realize about about the dog, and I can tell already. This podcast hasn't been going very long, but I can tell from our interaction with the listeners already. We have a pretty thoughtful audience. Um, so th- this probably doesn't apply to most of our audience. But one thing you have to realize is that your dog is totally in the moment. It does have memory, yes, but you can't explain to your dog, hey, see that pile of crap over there that you left an hour and a half ago? I'm going to punish you for that now. It, your dog doesn't work that way. Uh, so this concept of canine guilt, one of the biggest categories of dog video on YouTube are dogs that are ashamed or embarrassed about something. And I'll tell you, that's just complete BS. Your dog, if if you come in um, and your dog has a a like a hangdog expression and it's looking quote unquote guilty, it's probably not feeling it. it well, I guarantee you, it does not feel guilt. Uh, that is something that's kind of unique to the human experience. Uh, your dog probably knows you're going to yell about. You're going to yell. Doesn't know why. It it doesn't have a sense of right and wrong. Which let me. Can I tell a quick story here? Yeah, go for it. So my dad went through some health problems, uh, and I it was it was fairly uh, a fairly severe uh, health issue, and he was down for a few days, and a bunch of people were coming to visit, and uh, I flew out there, and uh, one of the people that came over was a preacher of another church that came over to uh, uh, you know just offer his support or whatever. And they started talking about dogs, and this guy said, yeah, you know, my dog came in, and, you know, I saw it had done this, and it knew it had done wrong. And I thought, man, that is odd thing for a Baptist preacher to be saying, because the Bible clearly says that Adam and Eve were imbued with a sense of right and wrong, and nothing else was. That's an interesting take. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's just, I think it's a simple case of projection, right, that we talked about on the Cognitive Biases episode. You know, you're projecting that onto the dog. The dog doesn't feel that. You know, it just doesn't have that emotion. Yeah, agreed. So the the point of all that is, is if you catch your dog doing something, you can punish it. And for me, a, a, a hard punishment for my dog is to raise my voice at her. That crushes her soul. And I try not to do that. Like, it's got to be something pretty bad. And I have to catch it right there in the moment. She doesn't understand five minutes, even, even four, two minutes later, why I'm yelling. She just knows I'm yelling and she will act quote unquote guilty just because I'm yelling. She'll put her ears back. She'll, you know, if I'm really yelling, lay down and and roll over and offer me your belly. She doesn't know why she's just reacting to me. Which I think is in line with some of the stuff I've read that dogs literally have the cognitive ability of like a two-year-old child and a two-year-old child is very much the same way so i think some of the for those parents that are listening you know when you're raising your two-year-old you probably know that the the child may not know they've torn something up and then 15 minutes later when you find it you're going to punish them they have no idea what why their mommy or daddy is so mad dogs i think are the same way would you agree with that or am i out in left field that that kid knows it knows punish it Punishing, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, I, so, so, so we talked about building relationship, right? Now we need to talk about what. Uh, so, let, let me just throw out a quick book recommendation for this. If you want to get inside of your dog, inside of your dog's head a little bit, there's an awesome book called "Inside of a Dog" by Alexandria Horowitz. 
phenomenal book on kind of taking the role of your dog and understanding where your dog is coming from. I, I can't recommend that book strongly enough. And the title is kind of a riff on the old, I think it was a Groucho Marx quote that outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend and inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. I've never heard that. That's, that's a, a, a tad disturbing, but uh, I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> um, so I think the next thing after you've uh, gotten a smart dog, you've built a relationship with that dog or you're in the process of it is you actually need a training plan. Uh, what undertaking would you recommend going into without a, a solid plan? Well, what do you want it to do? What, you know, what do you need to accomplish with this dog? I mean, is it going to just be a house pet or is it going to be something you're going to use on the farm? I mean, I've got horses, not cattle. And I will tell you that I've done a terrible job of training my uh, oldest dog because it will go nuts when it sees the horses. You know, so if I would have thought about that initially, I would have been better at I want the dog to be cooperative with the horses, certainly not hostile. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, you need to have a solid plan, decide what you want that dog to do, or or maybe in some cases decide what you don't want it to do. Um, I jump on jump on you when you come in the house and, and that sort of thing. Um, and this also goes a little bit to breed. Uh, uh, working dogs, working dog stock, especially some of the higher drive dogs like German Shepherds, they're going to want a job. They're going to need something to do to kind of keep them entertained. And um, I'm going to sidetrack here again, man. This is this is probably go, like running into a long episode, but this is important. If you get a dog, uh, and and like a lot of people do, and expect it just to kind of take care of itself for eight hours a day and be cool just sitting on the couch reading a book while you're gone all day. That's probably not the case, especially in like puppy and younger dog phases. They're going to need something to do. You're going to need to invest some time burning some energy out of them in the morning before you leave or coming home at lunch. Or if you have someone that stays at home or you work from home, you're going to need to spend some time actually getting some energy out of that dog. Totally agree with that, man. A dog is an investment, not just financially, but emotionally as well. And you know, you got to think about the entire life cycle of the dog before you just go out and get one. I mean, and and the environment that the dog is going to be in, man. I mean, if you're an apartment dweller, you know, you got to consider that. If I got a high drive dog and I'm going to live in an apartment and I'm going to be out at work eight, ten hours a day, don't get that dog. Definitely, definitely. Or modify your lifestyle uh, so that you can give that right. dog something like take it to doggy daycare or, or, or something. But yeah, so build a training plan, decide what you want that dog to do, uh, decide what things are important to you. Um, and I would say what commands are important to you, right? Yeah, totally. Like um, there's a Friday night street fair here in my town, as you know, uh, the last time you were in, Justin. So we're going to take Mary down there tonight. And uh, she recently graduated from this uh, AKC kennel training that we we went through for six weeks with her, and we're going to take her out to the community tonight and see how it goes, roll the dice. But we're going to see if she's really ready for that level of social interaction. Hopefully she'll pass the test. <laughs> I hope so too, man. I hope so too. So major commands that are important to me are recall first and foremost. I need to be able to call that dog and have it come back to me regardless of what's going on. And that is when I really uh, exhibit some stern posturing and 
the tenor of my voice changes if I call my dog and she doesn't immediately drop what she's doing and run back to me, she's gonna she's going to know about it. That's really, really important from a safety standpoint, from a liability standpoint, from from all kinds of things. That dog, if you're going to do anything with it off leash outside of your own property, it, and even if you're even on your own property, if it's not fenced and there's a road nearby or something, that dog needs to respond to a recall command. Well, and I'm interested to hear how you do it because uh, the first book I ever read uh, about dog training was, I think it was Dog Training My Way by Barbara Woodward. I think that's the name of the book. But um, And she emphasizes you know, using food training. So you're, you're not a fan of that, I know. So I'm interested to hear how you get that instantaneous recall without them wanting to come get a get a treat you know uh so there's there's two ways um so first and foremost back to that play drive um and let me jump ahead let me say why i'm not a fan of food training so first of all it teaches the dog to eat from your hand it teaches the dog when humans have food to to that it's going to get some to bug them for food to make its presence felt to get food I don't like that. That's kind of an ancillary thing. But also, the dog might decide whatever it's doing is more important than getting food. It might say, eh, I don't really care about that piece of bacon or, or whatever it is. Uh, and I, I've definitely, or that training treat or whatever it is, I've definitely seen that happen. So those are the reasons I'm kind of not a fan of food training. You're, you're letting the dog make a decision about, hmm, do I want to come back or, or do I want food? So the way I started with this is I bought a 30-foot just cotton training lead, fairly inexpensive. I would let my dog go out. I would say, come. And you basically start to apply a little bit of pressure on that leash. Now, I'm not going to drag her across the, the ground on that leash. Uh, my, my training is all focused around two things, positive reinforcement and play. So once she comes back to me, uh, I, I act like she just won the Super Bowl. I freak out about how great she is and how proud I am of her. And man, that just releases all the chemicals in her brain, and she loves it. Uh, so for me, it was really, really easy because she's really interested in pleasing me. That's, that's her first and foremost aim in life is to make me happy. So... Uh, that was the primary one. The other thing is her play drive. So instead of treating her with food, I will treat her with play, which is her Frisbee. Uh, so anytime, and and still, every time I go out and play that with her, I'll throw it, I'll give her a command, and I will expect her to obey. And as soon as she's done, she'll bring it back. I will, I'll freak out, and I'll start throwing it for her again. So I, uh, I tend to I tend to skew much more toward positive reinforcement and play than than food. I think that's a phenomenal idea. I never considered the fact that they're making this value judgment of is it worth it to come back for the for the food or not, or am I really enjoying what I what I'm doing at the moment? I, I think there's a lot of science behind what you're doing, man. Um, I believe it was Emory University did a study where they imaged dogs' brains and saw that the chemicals that these dogs are releasing in their head, you know, it, it's the same ones that uh, when you you know love someone. Those chemicals that are released in your brain, I think that's what you're talking about, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, so using that to your advantage, you know, you're you're using that dog that really loves you. Like it's it's going to value that more than playing with a stick in the yard, right? Yeah, and 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 let me be clear on this. I, I am, and, and I've said this before, but I just want to be absolutely clear on this. I'm not a dog trainer. I'm not a 
I was never a dog handler or dog trainer in the military or anything like that, but we have frequently had dogs embedded with whatever unit or outfit I happened to be with. And I talked to those trainers a lot because that was something I was keenly interested in. They had these amazing animals. I'm like, man, how, how do you guys do that? What, what goes into this? And if you look at how working dogs are trained, they're never trained with food. They're always trained with positive reinforcement and play. I, I did not know that. So, but again, like you, I'm, I'm not a dog trainer. I'm just a dude, man. Yeah, even the uh, explosive detection dogs, when they when they uh, respond on something, when they alert on something, that con gets thrown and they get to go after it and have a have a ball. Cool. So uh, where are we at? All right. So like that's my that is my personal like training philosophy in a nutshell. Uh, play reward with play and reward with just massive positive reinforcement. Um, and, and I know we've, we've skipped ahead a little bit into the, into the thing, but, uh, let's talk about negative reinforcement a little bit. I'm not a big fan of this, but I'm also, um, and, and when I say negative reinforcement, I don't mean beating the crap out of my dog. I, I don't do that. Uh, I, and I, I don't really think you should hit your dog. I don't, I don't think it's terribly effective. Uh, but my dog, if I, if I say sit and she doesn't sit, my voice gets, it drops an octave, sit, until she does. And the moment her butt hits the ground, good girl, what a good girl. And if she stands back up, sit. Like I go right back to that really stern posture. I, my body posture changes, my voice changes, my facial expression changes. And she's observing all of that and she's aware of it. Uh, that's about as far as I go with negative reinforcement. Also on those commands like sit and down, um, I don't have a stay command because once I put her into a down or into a sit, that's where she belongs until she is told free. I, I don't, I don't really believe in letting the dog make the decision on when to get back up. I mean, that's, that's my personal thing. You, you might be less rigid with that, but. Well, I think there's a lot of things that, uh, I, I like your, your style of dog training. I got, I got no issue with it at all, man. I've seen you interact with your dog and she's awesome and. So I'm I'm all ears, man. Um, all right. So let's talk about some some more training. Specific. We we talked about food training. We talked about positive reinforcement and play. We talked about negative reinforcement. Let's talk about crate training. Have you done this? Yeah, we're big on crate training. But once again, you know, it's like getting the dog to come into the crate. We always use with food. You know, food was the incentive to get in the crate. So our command would be cookie and a crate, and then they would come running, get in the crate get their cookie and we'd shut the door. I'm guessing that's the wrong thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so here, here's how I got this started. Uh, or or I, I'm going to recommend another, yet one more book. It's called The Art of Raising a Puppy by the Monks of New Skeet. I believe that's how it's pronounced. It's, it's these uh, this monastery of monks. I believe they're in New York, New York State somewhere. And they raise German shepherds. That's how they finance their monasteries, by raising these amazing German shepherds and selling them. And they've written two awesome books. I'll recommend the second one at the end of the show. But The Art of Raising a Puppy discusses crate training, and it discusses a lot of these things, building a relationship with your dog. Um, but basically, their recommendation is when the dog is a tiny, tiny puppy, put it in the crate, and you need to have an appropriately sized crate. And if you buy a huge crate right off the bat, because your dog is going to be huge one day, you need to block off a good portion of that. And the reason being, you don't want to give it enough space that it can walk to the back and pee and come back up front. But basically, the, the theory here is you put the dog in the crate, keep it in there, 
uh, and it won't go to the bathroom because it doesn't want to have to lay in its own excrement, basically. Uh, you let it out at predetermined intervals. It goes to the bathroom. You, pray, again, praise it like it just won the Super Bowl and repeat that, you know, go to the bathroom command, whatever it is. Once it does that, you put it back in the crate. Then you bring it out and feed it. Then you put it back in the crate. And gradually, the crate becomes just a safe place for the dog. So I did this, and my dog loves her crate. I, I still have it. I still I have, a, like, a pad in there that she can lay down on. And she knows, like, if she's tired, if she's just needs some space or whatever, she goes and lays down in her crate. And I, it's not a punishment. And I kind of have a deal with her, like, hey, I don't mess with you when you're in your crate. Like, that is your that is your room. That is your time to be alone, your time to rest, whatever you need to do. I, I, I definitely don't think the crate should be a punishment. No, we're definitely on the same page there. It's, you know, we leave the door open all day. Uh, our dogs can go in and out of their crates. And more often than not, they'll go in there to rest, even though they have, you know, another uh dog bed other places in the house but that's their like you said that's their safe place where they take their toys and they can get away from us and and just do their thing i think that's exactly the right thing to do yeah and that lets you have a couple other benefits too if you can travel with that crate it doesn't matter if you're in a hotel room uh airbnb uh whatever if you have that crate that dog has a familiar comfortable place to lay down um and if you leave your house, you can put that dog in the crate and close the door, and it doesn't feel like it's in lockup all day. It doesn't feel like it's in punishment. It feels like it's in a comfortable, safe environment, and it, it stresses the dog out less. I, I'm, I'm big on trying to manage my dog's stress, and I don't have to do a lot to do it, but I, I, like, I don't want her stressed out all the time if she doesn't have to be. No, absolutely. So uh, anything else on the specifics of uh, training? Man, we, I feel like we're just wave topping everything. I know, I know this, uh, I know we've been talking for almost an hour already and we're just hitting the wave tops of, of everything. I, I feel like I could talk a lot more about crate training, but I guess we better move along. Um, and this is, uh, I guess kind of the last piece of advice I would offer and it's be consistent. What do you mean by that? So I, I mean, I mean this in a couple of ways, be consistent in the commands you give your dog. Uh, so uh, let's say you don't want your dog on the furniture. Um, if the command is down, be consistent in saying down every time. Don't say off, get off, down, go. Exactly. Be consistent in your commands. Pick your pick your words, what they're going to be, and be very, very consistent with those. And this means everybody in your house, everybody that interacts with that dog, your your spouse, your children, your dog sitter, relatives that come up, whomever, interacts with that dog on a regular basis should have a consistent verbiage. So everybody's using the same thing. The dog doesn't speak English. It just memorizes these words. And if you tell it something else, it, it doesn't know what the hell you want. You know, the first time I saw this in action was as a brand new police officer in our canine uh, we had bought from Germany. And I didn't know that the dog only spoke German. You know, I, that just blew my mind for some reason uh, back then. Like, what are you talking about? I don't speak German, but this damn dog does. And we had to send our canine guy, you know, to Germany to pick up the dog and train with it for several weeks before he brought it back over. And it was uh, it was pretty cool, man. Because so that goes to the you got to be very specific on whatever the hell you're going to say and what and you got to stick with it no matter what. Yeah, and 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 like I have my 
built-in set of command. I, I man, I, I'd be hard pressed to say them all right now, but sit down. Uh, I, I've also I've done those in English and German, and also with hand signals. Sit down, free, come, uh, and free basically means if she's in a sit or a down, she doesn't move until she gets that uh, free, and then she can she can get up if she wants. She can lay there if she wants. She like she's free to do whatever she wants at that point. Um, off, which has become kind of the universal stop whatever you're doing. If she's eating something, if she's up on something that she shouldn't be on, off is the universal go on, stop what you're doing. Um, but yeah, those those need to be really clear, really concise. You need to be able to enunciate them clearly. And everyone needs to be consistent with those. The other thing I would say on consistency is that you need to be situationally consistent. If your dog, if you don't want your dog on the couch, you can't ever invite your dog up on the couch because it doesn't understand, oh, this is a special occasion and they're, and they're allowing me up here. It, it, it doesn't get that. The dog just knows, oh, okay, I'm, I'm on the couch, and he's not freaking out about it, so this must be okay. So you have to be situationally consistent uh, across that board, uh, across those commands, and you have to utilize these commands. You can't send your dog to a training school or train your dog for a month. It gets everything down real good, and then you just stop using these things. Your, your dog will forget, too. Like it, That stuff will start to atrophy. It'll still be in there, and you can bring it back. But I try to exercise these a lot. No, I think that's the um, I think that's the way to go. One of the things that, like you mentioned a while ago, I have children, and some of mine are my kids are adults. They don't live in the house anymore. So as they come back, and you know they'll try to, you know, give commands to the dog, and I'm like, hey man, she don't know what you're saying. You're going to have to say, whatever, off or leave it. You know, those are the words because. They'll have animals of their own, and they'll they'll try to use those words here. And I'm like, nah, dog doesn't have a clue what you're saying. Or like, they'll do what your mom did, you know. Well, here, get up on the couch with me. Like, no, they don't get up on the couch. So how do you do that? What is there a way to to, to train the human to not do that stupid crap and mess up your dog training? I, I man, I don't, I don't know if there, I, I don't I honestly don't know if there is, and I, so I try to get my dog around a lot of kids, and I had her around my nieces um, when she was she's about a year and a half old, and she spent a lot of time with them, and now she just recognizes children as like ooh people to play with, which is where I want her to be. I don't want her to be like whoa, who what is that? What is that tiny human? I want her to have a really positive reaction with that. So I try to keep her any chance I get to, you know, invite somebody over that has kids or whatever. I, I want to keep re- reinforcing that. And kids will come over and they'll pick up her, uh, you know, they'll throw her toy for her and she will bring it back. And they'll be saying every word under the sun to get her to let it go. And I'm like, you got to say this, you got to say off. That's what you got to say. Uh, and as soon as they say that, she'll spit it right out. But if you just grab it from her mouth and start tugging on it, she thinks you want to play tug of war. Or if you say something that she doesn't understand. So I, I don't really know. I, I do have a dog sitter that I gave a, a printed list of commands. These are what she responds to. She doesn't, she doesn't really know any other words. So these are what you have to say. And so far, good success, I guess. I think that's a great piece of advice, man. I hadn't considered that, giving them a list of... Uh... So they know how to interact with a dog. That's that's awesome. 
So what's the book of the week, man? Have we talked about that yet? Or are you going to... Man, I, I think we've talked about a bunch of books, but the one more that I would recommend, let's see, we talked about uh, The Intelligence of Dogs by Stanley Corrin. We talked about Inside of a Dog by Alexandria Horowitz, phenomenal author. I, I could probably name 15 more dog books. Uh, we talked about uh, The Art of Raising a Puppy by the Monks of New Skeet. And I'm going to offer another book by those same monks. It's called how to be your dog's best friend, and it's how to give your dog a happy, healthy, minimal stress, like just just the most positive life you can possibly give it. And, and I don't mean like quit your job and just dedicate your life to your dog. I mean giving the dog a good uh, you know, framework of discipline and obedience and uh, fun and just a good, like all things, balance and, and moderation. I'm going to have to check that out. I, I've recently heard about them on the uh, Joe Rogan podcast, The Monks of New Skeet. So it sounds really? like, oh, yeah. Have you heard that? I have not. You're going to have to tell me what episode that was in because I'd be interested to hear about. It. So I've, I uh, initially, uh, the first dog I had years ago, I checked out those two books at the library. And I have probably, I'd say I'd probably bought five or six copies of each of those to give to people that, that had dogs uh, over the last however many years. And I don't currently own copies of either of those myself, but they are phenomenal books. I can't recommend them strongly enough. And they're not step-by-step like, okay, tell your dog this, now do that, whatever. They're a good holistic approach. You have to read it. You have to really focus on the information that's being presented, but man, you should read those rich. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, he had uh, Jesse Itzler on his show, and I guess Jesse had written a book about uh, spending time with the monks. He went went up there and lived with them for like a month and, and wrote a book about it. But he was talking about their their dog training is just second to none. So I'm definitely going to check that book out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look for that right now. All right, man. So where can they find us, man? The, the listener that's new to the show, what do they need to do? They got to do something. They can find us at acrossthepeak.com. I wish you guys would go there, check out our show notes. Also, Rich and I have been working our butts off on additional content for the show or or additional content on our blog there. We have articles. We try to put out an article that at least one that dovetails with whatever we were talking about that week. So be sure to check that out. The other thing I would say to you guys, I don't want to overwhelm you with a bunch of crap you need to go do right now. But if you have not subscribed to Across the Peak podcast, please do that. That makes sure makes sure every episode shows up in your feed. You don't have to go looking for it. It's just going to be there the next time you open your podcast app. Right on, man. And as we, Justin and I always tell you, be safe. But if you can't be safe, be dangerous. been listening to the across the peak podcast be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content until then be safe and if you can't be safe be dangerous